Welcome to the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast, also known as the SASPod. I am Lalita Duperon, Associate Director in the Center for South Asia. All our podcasts and information about the center are available at southasia.stanford.edu. Today we welcome to the SASPOD Alicia Cherian, PhD student in the Department of Anthropology at Stanford. She's carrying out really fascinating research on race relations in Singapore, even if she is currently waiting for COVID restrictions to be lifted. Her background is in anthropology and drama, and she is now in her fourth year at Stanford. Alicia, thanks so much for coming on the SASPOD today. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm okay. Thanks for checking. It's uh, it's different. <laughs> yeah. We're still in 2020 in some ways, even though it's now 2021, but we're doing our best, right? Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, I'm just, yeah, I'm, I'm happy that so far I seem to be doing, I'm, you know, I'm in good health. It sounds like you're in good health. Correct. I feel like yes. that's all we can ask for at this point. Much to be grateful for. You're totally mm -hmm. right. Now, I know from our preliminary chat that your research mm -hmm. is really dense. So uh, we're going to take some slow steps through it, building up. Um, you have said that Singapore is in a way attempting the opposite of formal raci racial policies in South Africa in that they are promoting a comprehensive system of racial integration. Uh, it's a, a fascinating way of putting it. Can you say more about that? Sure. Uh, thank you for that. Um, so, yeah, like, uh, like we talked about before, where South Africa uses segregation Singapore uses the opposite racial integration um, to achieve uh, a lot of its goals having to do with managing its different racial populations. Um, and the way that it does it is, well, first of all, it's, it continues the colonial legacy of having um, very discrete, you know, hermetically sealed, at least on paper, racial categories. Uh, there are four racial categories in Singapore, Chinese, Malay, Indian, and the last one, is really called other um, and yeah and um, the first step that the state the the first step that the state does is that it controls um, the the racial demographics on a national level and they do that through immigration so um, Chinese are kept um, at around 70 something percent Malays at 14 percent Indians at 9% and others at 3% and then there's you know like the points there's decimal points in there that make it all add up to 100 right. um, but using you know using um, immigration so who's going to be allowed in each year who are going to get different employment passes who are going to get to apply for permanent residence for citizenship the state then is able to control those numbers mm -hmm. um, and then where the racial integration comes in is that well, you know, Singapore is a tiny island um, nation state city state uh off uh in southeast asia right like it's off the coast of malaysia and 
um, because it's so small and land is so scarce, housing is very expensive. And so um, there's the, the public housing in Singapore, the government subsidized housing, uh, unlike I think a lot of places around the world, um, over 80% of the population in Singapore lives in public housing. So you have people, you know, all the way from people who are, you know, upper middle class to working class living in public housing. Um, and, and, and so, you know, whatever you do with public housing, whatever policies you institute with public housing, you're kind of going to target the vast majority of the Singapore population, right? So, um, what, uh, so, so the public housing policy is that in every um, public housing estate, so, you know, a couple of blocks of flats or apartments, you know, as they say in the U.S., mm-hmm. um, you, uh, the, the those blocks of flats have to follow the national demographics. So in each public housing estate, you can't have more than 9% of the households be Indian. You can't have more than 14% of the households be Malay. And so, you know, across the island in every neighborhood, you have neighborhoods that pretty much for the most part match up to the national demographic. Um, and, and, you know, unlike the, you know, unlike apartheid in South Africa and Singapore's case, um, part of the reason why they do this is for, um, you know, socially progressive objectives um, of racial harmony, of making sure that, okay, so, you know, like you're going to have neighbors of different races, you're going to go to school with people of different races. And, you know, that's there. But at the same time, what it also accomplishes is that it really spreads out minority groups around the island so that, you know, electorally, um, you don't have a, you, you, you don't have, um, I mean, because where, so Singapore is a parliamentary system, mm-hmm. um, parliamentary democracy. And so every neighborhood, every um, constituency is never going to have, um, in, it's, it's never going to have enough of a racial minority, or even if all the racial minorities end up voting as a block together, they're never going to be enough to be able to vote according to racial minority interests. And then um, non-electorally, you know, just in terms of the everyday politics of, you know, everyday life, daily interactions, that kind of, you know, think Habermas coffee house kind of, you know, um, that kind of public sphere, daily life kind of interactions, um, you're also going to kind of dilute the presence of people being able to, you know, get together, be able to share, you know, yeah, share, share um, their experiences, complaints, you know, whatever else might mobilize people together and then get people active as well. Um, So that's, that's another thing that, that, that this racial quota system accomplishes as well. So just quickly, I have two, I have two quick um, tangents. One is what happens mm-hmm. if, uh, because you say that the, um, uh, the quotas are um, based on immigration or that's how they're controlled, mm-hmm. what happens if people of a particular group start having more children than is um, expected or, or whatever? Mm-hmm. How, how is that built or is, are the percentages not big enough? So... That's a really great question. And I'm not sure I actually have, you know, I my, the, the only answers that I have at this point are very much answers that I've heard from people in the interviews that I've been doing with them. So at this point, this is hearsay 
no idea if this is actual policy, but from what I've heard and what people talk about, it sounds like, um, well, one uh, part of the one of the problems that the state is dealing with currently is uh, Singapore has a very low birth rate at present, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of why there's been uh, one of the reasons why there has been kind of mass movements of immigration recently um, into Singapore. Um, but the other thing that I've heard as well is that that kind of factors into who is then being offered the chance to migrate into Singapore, to come into Singapore for work is um you know, this, you kind of see based on birth rates, you know, what groups are maybe doing, are, 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 are not reaching their percentage, their, you know, yeah, their, their national demographic. Right, so they might adjust, kind of out there. they might adjust right. the quotas as, as kind of things, like they, right, they look yeah. at them and adjust them. Right, yeah, yeah. So like a particular year, for instance, according to what my my interlocutors have been telling me, if, um, let's say, Chinese Singaporeans um, seem that that percentage seems to be dropping a little bit, then um, that means that Singapore might extend more employment passes or, um, you know, offer more permanent residence or citizenship status to people who are coming from, you know, the Republic of China, the People's Republic of China or Taiwan or Hong, you know, I mean, yeah, those those numbers then get kind of um, fixed, as it were. Got it. Got it. Okay. And then the other question I have, um, when you talk about this, so um, electorally, trying not to mm-hmm. build too big a kind of um, eth- ethnic minority based interest groups. Um, mm-hmm. Is that is that a good thing? And I don't want to put you on the spot to make a judgment on <laughs> on policy, but I'm just thinking. I mean, this is this is a time where, of course, we're thinking a lot in the United States about uh, voter suppression. I mean, it's always a big issue, mm-hmm. but I feel it's come more to the fore recently. And so, um, mm-hmm. do you see these electoral policies as as being actively very democratic, or is it more about um, keeping the status quo. Can you speak to that? It's a little bit outside of your research. Sure. No, yeah. Um, I, so to me, I see it as keeping the status quo, um, which I think actually, I I don't necessarily think that um, somebody doing policy in Singapore would necessarily, and I mean doing policy like somebody from the state, I don't necessarily think that um, they would actively disagree with that because I do think that the Singapore states, um, what 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 the state and 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 I know that I'm right now I'm talking about the state writ large and I think I'm going to get to maybe like complicating that a bit in a in in, in a second. Okay. But um, one of the one of one thing one thing that the state has kind of um, been about for the last let's say couple of decades is very much maintaining the status quo that you know um, since independence in 1965 over the last you know 50 something years there's been tremendous um, development along a bunch of different indicators and now and you know the the rhetoric very much is now that we've reached this point um, everything kind of you know I mean it's 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 still precarious it could go, it could be toppled over at any point, it could go at any minute. Mm-hmm. So it's important to maintain what is already there. What's interesting about this is that um, unlike, I, I think, so, I mean, in Singapore, as I've said, 70 something percent Chinese. Um, and I think that 
I mean, so basically, we, we talked about this the other day, but how if we're going to draw a parallel, um, Chinese Singaporeans are kind of the, you know, the white people of Singapore, to put it bluntly, yeah. uh, in terms of who has, you know, racial privilege, who who is this, not just the demographic majority, but also the social majority. Um, but unlike the rest of, you know, unlike many other countries, uh, many other nation states, um, where, for instance, in the U.S., white people maybe are considered to be the unmarked norm. Um, in Singapore, Chinese are, Chinese Singaporeans are very much marked as Chinese. Every racial group in Singapore is very clearly marked with their race um, through a whole host of uh, different systems, um, so much so that uh, it's one of the first things that people will notice about somebody and one of the first things that people will use to, you know, I mean, to, to, to describe somebody. Um, but, but, but I think electorally, what's interesting about that is there's this, there's this kind of, there's this colonial legacy um, that's kind of continued with the whole racial system where, um, where Chinese, like, you know, Singaporean Chinese social majority are marked as Chinese, the unmarked entity in this, this kind of, equation or this balance is the state so you know like how we had the British colonial state for instance who um where the state well, I mean sorry not state the British colonial um administration um where different racial or you know different groups of people were clearly marked as those groups of people um in order to better or to more effectively um administrate over them to govern them. Um, and the colonial administration uh, was kind of presented as this unmarked mediator um, or arbiter between the different groups. The Singapore state uh, presents itself as this kind of unmarked mediator between the different racial groups who are very much marked and racialized. However, of course, um, the state, the government is peopled by people. Um, and so, it's not, you know, it's it's not really unmarked, is it, when these people are still racialized within the system? So I'm sure many of our listeners are at this point wondering what I am. <laughs> I like these groups are already no doubt problematic, and we'll we'll get a little bit later about what it means to be quote unquote Indian. But um, even within within those four groups, what happens when people from these separate and separately quoted groups? Uh, get together and have children. Presumably that mm -hmm. happens. Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, and what, what happens is um, their children then, so uh, until about 20-ish years ago, um, what would happen is uh, their children would then have to kind of almost pick a side and usually that side was the father's side. Mm -hmm. So for instance, if you have an Indian Singaporean father and a Malay Singaporean mother, um, your children would be Indian Singaporean. And, and, and just to clarify, um, basically, yeah, like uh, the, the, the state identity, identity documents, our identity cards all have um, not just your name, your birthday, your address, but also your race on there. Wow. Um, and your race is really important in daily life because it's how you kind of navigate a whole bunch of systems like like one was the public housing that we've already talked about um, but other systems like uh, education so you have a second language that you have to take in Singapore from the you know from the time you start schooling all the way till um, you know the end of high school and what second language you take is dependent on your race the bureaucratic system that you have to navigate through that that that's dependent on your race and so it really does matter what race 
your child has, you know, what race is then written down when your child is born, because that is how your child from, you know, birth till death is going to then um, navigate the bureaucratic systems in Singapore, at least some of the bureaucratic systems, but important ones for sure. Um, and so, yeah, so until recently, that was through, you know, your father's side, that was the race you got. But then um, in about tw uh, in 2012 or 2010, um, people were then allowed to double barrel their children's uh, races. And uh -huh. so what that means is that, for instance, in that case, if you have an Indian Singaporean father, Malay Singaporean mother, your child could be either Indian hyphen Malay or Malay hyphen Indian. Um, and that and the order that you had that double barreling in, though, really did matter, really does matter, because, at, you know, whatever, whatever comes first in that double barrel is the race then that you still are going to continue to navigate the system through. So if it's Indian Malay, you, you know, navigate the system as somebody who's Indian, if it's Malay Indian, the opposite. And then that even matters for the third generation, because um, let's say you have somebody who is Indian hyphen Malay, and you have somebody who is Chinese hyphen Malay, and they have a child, then their child can only double barrel using the first two right. so the child so their child can't be malay their child has to be indian you know indian hyphen right. chinese chinese hyphen indian wow okay so yeah I, I i suppose with all these things always there's there's ideas on paper and then there's reality mm -hmm. and it's trying to force uh force the reality into into the ideology um mm -hmm. just so our audience understands all of this is still background to what we're going to talk mm -hmm. about now which is what your actual research is so let's move on to that tell us about your research Thank you. Um, so I'm looking at uh, this system in Singapore, and basically I'm interested in how it's lived in everyday life, um, and how I'm looking. I'm looking at that by considering Singapore as um, not only a post-colonial society, but one that's also post-indenture, um, and how that post-colonial, post-indenture history. Um, meets with this, you know, heavily structured and comprehensive racial integration, and then how that um, how that shapes race relations, as well as how the racial category of Indian itself is lived in everyday life. And I'm looking at that through um, daily inter everyday interactions and encounters in public urban space of people of South Asian descent. So those are the people who make up the category of Indian. And I'm interested in how um, encounters take place both across racial categories. So, you know, with people who are Chinese Singaporean, people who are Malay Singaporean, but then also within the racial category of Indian. Um, because, you know, I mean, I think anybody who's, you know, who uh, does South Asian studies will know that that category is such, I mean, if we're in, even just talking about like ethno-linguistic or ethno-religious groups, a category that encompasses at, you know, up to a certain point, all of South Asia, I mean, more recently, it's people coming specifically from India, but, you know, until before that, all of South Asia, I mean, that is such a massive category with so much diversity, both within it and around it and kind of slipping in and out of it. And then when you add, you know, you add things like um, gender, socioeconomic class, and um, sexuality, caste, ability, disability, age. I mean, it's just, you know, there's just so much there. Um, 
And so, so, so basically I'm looking at these interactions and encounters to see how um, inter and intra race relations are both reflected in those encounters, but then also produced in those encounters as well. So I know you're halted by COVID right now as we all are, mm -hmm. but, but once you're able to get back to Singapore, what are some of the methodolo methodologies that you'll be engaging then to, to do this research? Um, well, once I once but right now I'm currently doing in, uh, kind of stuck at the interviewing stage. But yeah, mm -hmm. once I'm once I'm able to do in person research, you know, obviously this is a PhD in anthropology, so obviously participant observation. Um, but two of the research methods that I'm really excited to start using um, is one is um, kind of a take on oral histories, except it's going to be instead of individual oral histories, I'm interested in family oral histories. So having, um, you know, sitting down with families, um, you know, people of different generations all together and then asking them questions about their, um, you know, their family history in Singapore, as well as their trajectory to Southeast Asia, you know, from the sub subcontinent to Southeast Asia. Um, and just kind of, you know, hearing how people flesh out each other's stories, bounce off each other, how maybe different, you know, experiences and opinions, different, you know, intergenerational differences and similarities, how all of that kind of comes out. And I'm really excited to see what that lends. Um, but the other methodology is a uh, participant mapping exercise mm -hmm. um, where I'm going to be well, I'm going to uh, be walking through certain spaces, Indian spaces, because um, I'm, I'm doing uh, one of the things that I'm really interested in in this is um, one is looking at urban space as a public sphere. So really taking seriously these daily uh, spatial practices and the kind of politics and what kind of political political participation um, and actions and mobilizations occur in these spaces just by being in these spaces. Um, but also another thing I'm interested in is um, looking at the urban landscape as an archive um, and not just, you know, on the one hand, very much as a physical archive, um, you know, like the Tim Ingalls kind of um, tasscape, how, how the urban, you know, I mean, how landscapes in general are, 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 are the product of the actions that go into building them, into making them. Right. Um, so physically, you know, the urban landscape as archive, but also metaphorically uh, thinking of, you know, Moral Finkelstein's work of how um, people store memories and histories and narratives, um, stories in, um, you know, in, 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 in the materiality of the urban landscape. And so, and, and so I'm hoping to kind of get at that with this mapping exercise where I'm going to be walking through Indian spaces with some of my interlocutors and having them give me a tour of the space in person. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm hoping with that to kind of get at, you know, on the one hand, these, yeah, whatever, you know, memories and memories, narratives might come up in, in person as we're going through the space that may not necessarily be triggered if we're talking, you know, out of the space, just in an interview. Um, but, you know, being in that space, being able to kind of see things that might jog certain memories, trigger certain memories. Um, and, and yeah, and, and hearing all, you know, kind of collecting these narratives that might be, you know, might wrong, run alongside official narratives, but they might also be alternative narratives as well. They might, you know, present alternative histories. Um, and another thing that I'm interested in getting at here is also um, what, you know, 
beyond just um beyond just let's say visual description the kind of like uh the the, the sounds the smells you know anything you know yeah the 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 other other registers of the sensorial that 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 might be present with us as we're walking through the space you know i'm thinking of yeah like the the the, the smell of jasmine as we're walking you know by temple stores stuff like that you know spices um yeah and so just kind of like fleshing out space in all of these different ways it's, with these methods it's a it's a shame that as far as i'm aware that cannot yet be captured and reproduced i mean the the, the um <laughs> The olfactory experience is can only be described, but it's never it's never sufficient. But right. it does it does trigger very strong uh, responses that hopefully you'll be able to get uh, to then with your interlocutors. Um, mm. I want to ask you a little bit more about this category of of quote unquote Indian. Mm. You already said that it really refers to anybody of South Asian descent, and then mm-hmm. encompasses these all these variations. I mean, the mind boggles of uh, like mm. it almost an, it's almost um, a, a kind of uh, a pointless category because it's like mm. it's everyone. Um, mm-hmm. th- just the diversity within South Asia itself. But um, I do feel I need to just ask you this particular question Mm -hmm. and I apologize if it seems, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for, essentializing and I kind of hate to ask it, but where does caste come into this? Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, So that's actually, that's a really good question. And one that, you know, I'm very much at the beginning of the research and I I hope, I really hope I'll have a much better answer once I'm near the end. Um, But right now where, so far where caste has come into it in my research, um, in these interviews that I've been doing is kind of um, a lot of people's, instead of necessary, like instead of um, maybe what people's actual, you know, historical caste categories might have been. Um, what I'm seeing a lot of is kind of the projection of caste and kind of the d- d- different imaginaries of caste mm-hmm. that are projected onto people. I mean, not, not, not to say that that isn't what's going on, you know, when we're talking about caste in South Asia, but I think that there's something that's interesting here in Singapore um, where and, and, and where caste comes up in my interviews is this kind of assertion that um, Singapore that that Singapore doesn't de- like that 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 caste no longer exists in Singapore mm-hmm. that um, at, at least among uh, people who've been here for generations and generations um, caste is no longer a factor caste doesn't come into it and there's a whole lot of speculation amongst my interlocutors about why um, one of the what, what one of the things that gets thrown out there is you know just sheer time um, and that with other you know with 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 race being the main um category of difference in singapore that kind of you know pushes other things to the side um knocks other things off the table another speculation has been that um because singapore has this history of convict labor and indentured labor well singapore specifically convict labor malaya as a whole indentured labor indentured labor there's this idea that i mean and that kind of runs across the you know world of indenture right this 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 um notion and you know the false notion that people who entered into indenture were always necessarily um from lower caste backgrounds right. and so 
you know, this idea there, there, there's also this kind of mythos of um, the Indian community in Singapore being one that is there purely through this convict and indentured labor history, which is not true. I mean, you know, there were a myriad a host of reasons why um, and how uh, South Asians came to Singapore as early as uh, the 15th or 16th century um, people migrating over from South India and Sri Lanka to Malaya to, you know, people still being a part of that indenture system, but being, um, let's say, plantation um, overseers to, to being a part of the colonial administration to after, colon I mean, you know, there's just so many different trajectories, but um, basically, sorry, to get back to, 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 to the question, um, there's this idea that that is, you know, the migration history of Singapore. And so therefore, if you have, you know, majority of people in Singapore, um, originally being of, let's say, lower caste backgrounds, then caste then gets kind of pushed aside in that way as well. You know, I mean, th th these are people's speculations, but um, it's interesting where in, as I've been talking to people, where caste um, seems to matter now again, and I say seems to because, you know, I, I, I don't necessarily think that it's as easy to say that it's, you know, that simple to say that caste definitely was is not a thing anymore until what I'm about to tell you next is you know I I, I don't necessarily buy into that I think that's yeah I mean and 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 that's something I don't think anybody I don't think anybody does I think you can say right. that at least I, yeah, okay. nobody buys into that <laughs> um it gets complicated because um there's been recently uh uh, an influx of, of migration from South Asia, again, from India. Right. Um, and how, why this happened is because recently, um, the, the, those national demographics that we talked about, they went from, they, they, they went from 7%, or they were allowed to go from 7% to 9%. So you have this mass, you have, you know, a pretty significant wave of migration over and um, people migrate, and, and people who are migrating over, um, were are um, mostly from uh, or you know occupying certain certain uh, jobs in Singapore, mostly in let's say the IT sector. You have engineers, but basically people who are um, you know forming like very much a middle, if not upper middle class um, uh, group of people who are coming over, and so you have people. I mean, and and so you have like this sizable population who's come over and the people who I've been talking to in interviews um, have brought this up because it's kind of brought in another interesting element into this question of intra-racial relations where, um, where, where there's been quite a bit of tension between these recent immigrants and between older generations of Singaporeans, Indian Singaporeans. Um, and one of those sites where tensions arise in, gen well, in, in general is um, religious institutions, but specifically, and this is where caste comes into it, it's um, temples. Um, and, and, and what I've been hearing is, so basically before um, these, this recent wave of migration, how um, a lot of the temples in Singapore worked was that, you know, you kind of, you arrive and it's very much first come first serve, you line up and you then, um, you know, see the God when you, depending on where you are in line. And it's just that, you know, it's kind of that simple. Um, and you just kind of go through the temple in that order that you come. Um, however- These are Hindu temples we're talking about. Hindu temples, yeah. sorry, sorry. Yes, Hindu Enough. temples. Um, and, uh, with, with uh, and, and now um, 
with the newer immigrants coming in, um, my interlocutors have told me that they themselves have seen or been a part of situations where um, people will come into the temple and will kind of demand that separate lines be formed according to caste, um, that you would get to jump line if you are presumably of a higher caste, um, and 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 what and, and the kind of overarching um, general sense that seems to come out of these, um, you know, I mean, because, you know, people will say these things. And of course, you know, other people will get very upset that these things are being said that, you know, um, these are changes that people are trying to make. Um, but 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 what kind of comes out of all of this is this kind of general assumption by um, a lot of the um, newer immigrants who are coming from places like um, like uh, like a lot of like Telugu speaking people, a lot of North Indians coming in um, and assuming that the local Tamil Singaporean population are automatically from a lower caste background. So wow. one, the assumption automatically that local Singaporeans are originally of a lower caste background, but also then um, the um, according to my interlocutors, the kind of like bringing like like making caste matter again, where according to my interlocutors, caste no longer mattered in Singapore. So whether or not, you know, that first part, you know, I mean, there's a lot to get into that with right. that claim, but whatever it is now, what's happening is kind of caste being a being made to be um, a big topic of conversation now among people and um, this kind of, yeah, this, the, and, 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 and being one of the grounds on which a lot of um, animosity is kind of being, um, is, is taking place between these two groups. Right. Um, of, of, right. Yeah. And, and, and I'm imagining, um, I think about the Netherlands where I grew up. Um, so there's always been this um, uh, kind of great social, socially progressive values. Uh, and there's an argument that I believe is evidenced by reality that um, immigration, um, people that migrate to the Netherlands may not um, have been raised in cultures that have similarly socially progressive values. And so that brings mm. more conservative values into the Netherlands. And so um, the population that's already there feels oppressed by that and, mm. and you know feels that their behavior is being challenged by people that are essentially or framed as quote unquote outsiders. And mm. while there's evidence that this is true, the same as what you say about caste in Singapore, that all makes a lot of sense, but I imagine as certainly happens in the Netherlands, that is then leveraged by people with certain agendas to really um, mm. create create uh, schisms and, and maybe go for divide and rule type um, mm. uh, approaches. And um, I, I think in the Netherlands, and I'm not trying to make a parallel here between the Netherlands and Singapore, mm. I'm just speaking mm -hmm. from my own experience that, um, mm you start off with an argument that seems fair enough and then it builds into something that becomes really quite pernicious and it's hard to know where the one kind of bleeds into the other. And, and so I imagine in Singapore, and this is really just imagining, um, mm -hmm. you know, there's, there's a little bit of truth and then there may also be the hearsay and you know, people being uncomfortable with change or being uncomfortable with mm. newcomers or being uncomfortable mm -hmm. with outsiders and, and that all kind of then gels together. Yes, absolutely. I mean, there's this kind of, there's, there, there, there's this very much this, um, I mean, there's another, like, this, this weird kind of duality going on here where on the one hand, 
I'm hearing stories of how people are very much, you know, like losing um, space, losing, you know, like, uh, yeah, losing space in a lot of these different financial, sorry, sorry, uh, losing space in a lot of these religious institutions, a lot of these religious organizations, community organizations, social organizations, um, in, in two, two groups that are, I mean, you know, these recent um, immigrant groups, especially within the South Asian population, recent immigrant groups who are very much um, of, a, you know, higher econ- socioeconomic strata are coming from a higher socioeconomic strata, but at the same time, um, and, you know, while that is definitely problematic, and, you know, the story, the story that I just shared with you is definitely problematic, there's also, um, it's hard to also not recognize the xenophobia as well. Right. That's the word I was looking so for. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's really complicated situation um, where I think maybe the, the best way to do it justice is to just say that it's both at the same time. Right. Yes. I, yeah. I, I, um, I think that's, that's also a great place uh, to leave our conversation. I feel we only just got started. Uh, mm-hmm. There is so much more to say and so much more to ask, mm-hmm. but uh, I do. Uh, we do have to wrap up to kind of stick within the time frame of the, mm-hmm. of the podcast. Um, thank you so much for making time for me today. I, I learned so much, and um, I'd be fascinating to learn more about your research as you go on. I hope you'll be able to get back to field work uh, before too long. Oh, thank you so much. Me too. <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> All the best, and uh, and and thanks so much, Alicia. All right, thank you. Thank you so much for this. I also want to thank Sonam Shiva for creating the beautiful music for the intro and outro of the podcast and Simrat Mataru for doing the post-production. Thank you for listening to the SASPOD, the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast. Find out all about the Stanford Center for South Asia at southasia.stanford.edu and find us on social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for joining us, and I hope you can tune in again soon.